Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you an unbiased lens on investing and capital markets through short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. Today on the show, will President-elect Biden take on the tech industry? You may recall that in October, just weeks before the presidential election, the Justice Department filed an antitrust lawsuit against Google, alleging the tech giant used its dominance in online search and advertising to stifle competition and harm consumers. The case could take years to resolve, but in the meantime, many wonder whether big tech will be in the crosshairs of the new administration. Joining me today to talk about this and what investors can learn from the Microsoft antitrust case is Sam Husko, founder of SGH Wealth Management. Sam is a CFA charter holder and a certified financial planner. Sam delivers a great primer on antitrust issues and the big tech stocks. We also talk about his journey into the investment industry and how he's advising clients to think about their portfolios in 2021. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Sam Husko, welcome. Thank you. Great to be um, here. Well, it's really great to have you on the show today. And you're joining us from Detroit. Now, that's a really interesting city. It has a number of nicknames. I was reading it's known as the D. It's Motor City, Motown. So I thought a fun place might be to start with uh, your hometown. Um, what are three things you think that listeners should know about Detroit? Well, you know, there's a lot of things. I'd say, uh, number one, one of the best kept secrets here is just our food scene. Uh, we kind of have an incubator for chefs that have, you know, been employees in New York, but saw, saw how cheap it is to get real estate or rent in Detroit, and we still got a lot of demand for good food. And uh, this is where I might lose credibility right off the get-go uh, on this, but I would argue that the Detroit food scene is better than uh, New York City today. And uh, you know, pre-COVID, I was in New York about once a, a month, so that that's certainly one thing I'd want everybody to know. Um, the second thing's the people. You know, we got a lot of hard worker, you know, Midwesterners, and very humble, so a very different type of community than New York and, and LA. And you know, as a business owner and a founder, I would just say this is a phenomenal environment to start a business in. Uh, again, cheap rent, cheap real estate. So those sunk costs, you know, we just have a huge competitive advantage, especially now with the internet kind of being that that evener. Uh, and then also working capital too. Uh, human capital is is cheaper in this region again. Um, but one thing I would say, though, as a CFA charter holder, used to being a wet blanket at times, uh, from a municipal bond standpoint, there was a lot of excitement. But people should know that you know 2023 is when the pension holiday will expire, and our city will have to have about $160 million of expenses put onto it. So, from an investment standpoint, uh, I would I would make sure you do your homework. But from a visiting standpoint, this should make your list of, of post-COVID uh, travels after everything's solved. So I did mention that uh, Detroit is the birthplace of, of Motown Records, so there must be a thriving music scene. So I'll just share one little uh, fun thing parenthetically for any listeners who are interested in uh, music or documentaries. I know you, you, you play some music. There's a fabulous film called Searching for Sugar Man which is set in Detroit, and it's about an, ex an obscure artist uh, who was known professionally as Rodriguez. 
um, and he was hugely popular in, of all places, South Africa. So um, be sure to check that out. So you mentioned also you, you're the a founder of a firm, um, SGH uh, Wealth Management, and I was really surprised to learn that you founded that firm pretty soon after college. So what got you interested in investing? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of stumbled in the investment part. You know, I was always a big stats person. I loved numbers. You know, from a from an academic standpoint, it's really math that got me through that stage of my life. But um, you know, after that, I, I did have a job lined up at the Bureau of Labor Statistics that did fall through, um, and so then went into the investment world um, as a fresh face. I, I would say what. What really magnetized me to this area, though, is just the creativity that's required in finance. So, you know, differently than accounting, uh, which, you know, is, is more of a plug and play type of profession, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, no offense to the accountants out there. Uh, but, you know, making decisions with 80, 90 percent of the information, that competitive nature of it. But then, you know, what worked last year isn't going to work this year and it's not going to work next year. And so that requirement to be creative is, is I think, what has drawn me to this industry the most. So, yeah, we didn't often hear creativity and finance or investing in the same sentence. But I think you're absolutely right. Um, creativity really is, is key. Um, oh, yeah. So let's talk about something that I know that you've been thinking about a lot lately. And mm -hmm. as we've seen in the news, uh, a Biden presidency could have major ramifications for U.S. tech policy and issues such as antitrust and privacy will likely be high on the agenda. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah. So, you know, with these two odd elections that we've had recently and and uh, election tampering uh, honestly uh, it, it's really brought up a lot of question marks of you know how is is facebook running things google running things and it's really woken up this sleeping giant of antitrust you know it's it's been 20 years since uh, we had the microsoft case and so you know really the question marks have been about tampering and privacy and data uh, but what's happened more recently with uh, Bill Barr's is uh, the investigation on antitrust. And it was a you know 450 page long investigation. Um, and, and you know that kind of gets into the why of today. But another part of the why is just simply uh, politics here are also pretty divisive uh, and a little toxic. And so I think, you know, if you, take what Biden's saying and, and saying that he wants to work with both sides together in a bipartisan effort, uh, there's not better low-hanging fruit than politicians holding hands, you know, singing kumbaya and fighting the big, bad, you know, tech companies uh, that, that seem like monopolies. I mean, as a sidebar, you know, Jeff Bezos uh, has the look of a James Bond villain already. So it, it's pretty easy to see how even marketing wise, this can can look like something that everybody can kind of get behind. Um, other tidbits, too, is, you know, bars used to work uh, at Verizon and, and he initiated this case. He used to work at Verizon and was part of the you know net neutrality case. And so, you know, he had some conflicts with Google and the like uh, from back then, which could kind of be continuing to spark uh, a little bit of this flame. And then to your point, too, in being bipartisan, one of the judges that's been appointed has is an Obama uh, appointed era judge as well, too. 
So, you know, I was, I was really excited to see Elizabeth Warren and Bill Barr's on the same side of the fence. We'll see who's in charge once Biden does his camp, uh, you know, cabinet for that purpose. But uh, that that's really the why. But we need to know what antitrust is as well, uh, because that's the part of it where I think that it doesn't really coincide with what the investigation was. And the investigation, you know, that could just be information that government gets to try to do other laws in the House or whatnot. But this suit that's actually out there, specifically against Google and Amazon, um, it's not about election manipulation. You know, it, it's about uh, anti-competition, the Sherman Act from 1890, and, uh, you know, things that show how they've acted in kind of anti-competitive ways. And, you know, I, I would remind, too, like, it's okay to be a monopoly in America. You know, it, it's not illegal to simply just be a giant monopoly. It's, it's whether or not you use that power to be anti-competitive, use that power for evil against your opponents, as opposed to just help yourself. Um, one thing that's also really important is there's a rule called the consumer welfare standard. So a lot of what centers around these political decisions is going to be around, are the consumers harmed in any way? Um, and, and that's going to be very difficult to prosecute. Uh, one thing I'd always bring up in these contexts is, you know, technology innovation moves really, really fast. <laughs> you know, uh, they're replacing themselves almost, you know, yearly, if not every few years. And our U.S. court system will take years, if not decades, to make a decision uh, in that same type of circumstance. So technology is just going to move very fast. This is a very slow process. And the other thing is these tech people have a huge informational advantage uh, over the politicians. They're having to learn all this stuff as they go. And, you know, Google, Facebook, Amazon, they can choose what information they dole out. And if the correct question isn't asked, they're not going to volunteer that information. Um, again, and going back all the way to Rockefeller, you know, Rockefeller was a famous uh, antitrust case. A Supreme Court justice on, on their case uh, said that antitrust uh, law and antitrust litigation is a fool's errand. So, you know, it could be just a lot of pomp and circumstance, and, and this is speculation, but it could be a lot of pomp and circumstance without as much teeth as maybe people are expecting in this type of field. So I remember years ago spending time in Seattle, and of course at that time, you know, the, the case against Microsoft was dominating the news. Maybe you can sure. take us a bit down that, that path. Remind us what happened with Microsoft. Yeah, so I think it's a excellent case study. I mean, it's it's so similar to the Google situation that you can draw a lot from this. And and again, as an investor, you need to draw from history, psychology, uh, statistics to to be the best investor. Um, now, I would also say, though, Facebook, Amazon, and Apple are different cases. So I, I think they're going to have a harder time. But Microsoft very, very closely relates to Google. So taking a, a time warp in history, we can remember the weird noises that our, our phone modems made. Uh, we've got Netscape out there, AOL, Nokia. You know, th these are the names that were back then. And uh, this investigation started in 1992. So that, that's pretty much where we would be today. And the actual trial itself didn't start till 1998. So six years of investigation. And 
What I bring up with that is Google's case right now, they're estimating that they'll need about 18 months of investigation. And I, I think that's a little uh, short-sighted. Uh, I, I think that Google's going to be able to gra drag their heels quite a bit. Um, I also believe that, you know, if an administration change happens because it does get delayed, you got to know that the next set of politicians are really going to want to use their resources towards this priority as well, too. So it, it takes a lot of things to push this ball up a hill. And um, but, you know, bringing us back to 98, um, we've got a 40 year old Bill Gates who is not the seemingly nice uh, older gentleman that he is today. Uh, you know, he was a, a bit arrogant, uh, smug, certainly, vicious, aggressive. Um, you know, he was uh, accused of pressuring Nokia to use their platform for their mobile devices. Um, a bunch of other things came out of it as well. But the, the biggest case had to do with how uh, the Microsoft operating system required you to use their web browser, Internet Explorer. And, you know, they, they uh, you know, he was pretty contentious. You know, he, there was, you know, people investigating him that were still on pen and paper at that time. So I'm sure there was an air of, uh, you guys are behind the times. Why do I have to deal with this sort of thing? And, and I'd say he didn't handle it as well, probably, as maybe he would now uh, in hindsight. Um, but one of the most salacious things at that time is they actually doctored videos of, you know, if you removed the Internet Explorer web browser, that uh, the operating system would actually function more slowly. And they doctored and edited and cut videos to show that, oh, no, it doesn't slow down at all. Uh, and that was proven, you know. And so I, I think that's a it's an important thing to know because Google is going to manage this in a totally different way, which I'll, I'll you know, hopefully touch on in a minute as well. Um, but then 98 to 2001, you know, they were found guilty. They appealed, you know, really got off with a slap on the wrist. But that, that whole saga was like nine years long. You know, uh, it didn't end up in breaking up Microsoft. You know, we don't see the baby bills out there or anything like that. It was really just disclaimers, more firewalls, and, you know, really the lawyers won more than anybody. Um, if you could say there was any negative effects, you know, in the investigation, some proprietary information probably got out. Uh, there's rumors that, you know, some code was a part of that, which Linux used to start their empire. Uh, it certainly slowed their progress, so to give, you know, room for Apple to you know, get into that mobile uh, operating system, where you know, even at the time, Jobs said, you know, jokingly to the government, "Hey, buy us time so that we can, you know, start to compete with Microsoft." Um, and then I'd say the biggest thing, though, is a lack of mergers uh, and just the distraction of the events in general. So, you know, and, and this will get into how it, it relates to the finance side, but it's just. While in the investigation and while on the trial, you know, it didn't really hurt them. The, the results didn't really hurt them, but, you know, the ancillary effects of that might have. And to put that in context today, you know, Microsoft's browser only, only is about 4% of the market share. Uh, Google Chrome is like 66%. So, you know, I would say that you could argue that that's just about innovation uh, more so than antitrust or whatnot. 
That's a quick and, question. So for, for the younger investors who may be listening and may not have been watching Microsoft's uh, share price yeah. during all of this, what, what was the effect on its, the stock price? Yes, yes, excellent. So, you know, a couple of uh, groundwork things there. Uh, we have the mega cap rally today. So, you know, 2020 has been like five stocks that have pushed up the markets. You know, the other 495 in the S&P 500 have some work to do. Uh, very similar to the environment where we have the dot-com bubble, where it was tech stocks, and, and that was it at that time. Um, so, you know, in context, just remember the peak of the dot-com era was in the, the 2000 year. Um, but in 92, you know, and, and these are relative, so I don't know what to draw from it, but uh, Microsoft's P.E. ratio was 36. Today, Google's P.E. ratio is 34. So, you know, could see some similarities with that. Uh, but from 92 to 98, uh, from 92 to 98, while they were in the investigation, Microsoft averaged an annualized return of roughly 40% per year, uh, while the NASDAQ 100 did, you know, closer to 21%. So while they're being investigated, they are massively, massively outperforming the markets. Then, you know, the trial hit, and that's really when the drama started mostly uh, from 98 to 2001. Uh, also remember the tech bubble burst again, which I mentioned. Uh, Microsoft still averaged an annualized 16% rate of return uh, when the NASDAQ 100 did around 11%. So still outperformance, I would say, in that zone, depending on the date period you choose, you know, the NASDAQ's winning, Microsoft's winning. So it, it, I'd consider it to be more of an even playing field then. Uh, but post-litigation, that, that's what's I guess the interesting part. Um, the underperformance didn't really start till 2010, but if you take 2001 through 2013, you know, Microsoft did roughly about a 2% rate of return when the NASDAQ 100 did five. Um, yeah, a lot of things could explain that away, though. I mean, innovation, uh, a healthier environment. Uh, but, you know, one I would say could be a big part of it is their you know, lack of ability to do mergers and acquisitions after that point. Um, other things I'd note is their revenues were still strong. Their earnings were still strong throughout this whole situation. But another to note is their market cap did start to decline, you know, in about 1999. So, again, a lot of moving parts, but not the teeth that I think people expected for such a big lawsuit like, yeah. like antitrust. That's a fantastic history lesson and a look back at Microsoft. So bring us up to the present day and uh, the FANG stocks. And for those listeners who might not know what the FANG stocks refer to, start with that explanation. Yeah, so um, I'm gonna exit out Netflix from this because uh, they're not as under as much scrutiny. But, you know, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, um, it's really the Facebook, Apple, Amazon, and Google that are, are up, up for this. So, and those ones together uh, have a market share of, uh, or market cap of five trillion with a T. I don't get to say that number as often as I'd like, uh, five trillion dollars. And so, huge companies understand why people are concerned. Um, but the first complication is this. Uh, what are they a monopoly of? You know, it was more easy to have that discussion with Microsoft because times were simpler back then. 
But what is Facebook? Is Facebook a, a social media company, an advertising company, a news company? You know, just what are they? And if you can't say what they are, how can you say they're a monopoly of everything. And so it, it's just going to be very difficult to prosecute because of that compared to Microsoft. Uh, and then the second part is all these services are free. Like how, you know, getting back all the way to that initial thing I said is, is it causing the consumer harm? It's inequivocally not causing the consumer harm. Uh, advertising costs have plummeted, plummeted since Facebook. And I can attest to that with a small business. I would not be advertising nearly as much if I still had to do the paper editorial route. Um, you know, all these services are free. So how are the consumers being harmed? It's, it's very, very nuanced to that degree. Um, but what I would say is, you know, Facebook, Facebook's going to come under a lot of scrutiny due to their Instagram merger. So they're gobbling up a lot of market share. So, you know, folks who are like, oh, I'm done with Facebook. I don't trust them, but I'm headed over to Instagram. You know, might not realize that they're still giving their data to the same place. Um, Amazon, Amazon's private label will probably be a big part of the discussion. So, you know, and, and this is something that, that I can see it from both sides. Uh, entrepreneurs take a ton of risk. They start a business, they put it on Amazon. And then once the stats show Amazon, this is a viable thing for us as well, too, then they're going to come into the mix and just start their own Amazon label of whatever's successful. So the entrepreneurs are taking all the risk and Amazon's reaping the reward, which is not it's not the landscape that we want in business. But how is it all that much different than what CVS is doing or what generic prescription drugs do or anything like that? So, again, another difficult one to prosecute. And the other one is Apple. Uh, I would say Apple, more so than anything, is guilty by association. Uh, and that association is with Google. Uh, they, uh, there's an executive that they found a, a memo uh, that said, you know, we really want this Google partnership to be such that uh, these two companies are acting as one. And uh, that's technically an oligopoly. Uh, so they're going to look at those things to see where the firewalls need to be in place and such. But again, I'd say Apple isn't really going to be under the crosshairs too much. Uh, it's Google. You know, Google is way more easier to just say they dominate the search engine market. And that's how narrow this discussion really is in antitrust. It's just the search engine market. And really where that discussion lies is, you know, Google pays Apple $10 billion per year to be their default search engine. So, you know, and this is where I see shades of Microsoft. I mean, Microsoft was give, uh, selling you the OS and then requiring the default browser to be their Internet Explorer. So that, that's where the, the similarities really draw. Um, the differences are it's really easy to change your default browser on the phone. I mean, like I said before, Microsoft was slowing your computer down if you made that decision. So they certainly weren't making it easy. Uh, Google makes it easy. There's tutorials online. It, it's up to you. And it, it's a free service. Um, it's very narrow in scope. Again, very difficult to, to prosecute. And I'd also say Google is way more diplomatic than a 40-year-old Bill Gates. Um, they have been history, you know, historians 
of that situation, and they just know how to handle it in a more muted way. And so I think they're just not going to put their foot in, in their mouth as much, maybe, and, and really be able to navigate it more. And I think that's what's led to, I mean, one thing that's also interesting to me is out of the 50 state attorney generals in the United States, only 11 of them have backed this bill. And so I would just say that it doesn't have the widespread, um, you know, uh, force or, or support that you might expect, but you know certainly in the House and in the federal AG, you, you definitely see that. So, so what is the sort of the bottom line, or really the key takeaway uh, for investors? Yes. So you know we're trying to pre-plan in this discussion, and this is a salacious, uh, dramatic news headline that we could see people knee-jerk reacting to. Um, so, you know, what we'd really see bad for these, you know, tech company stocks, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, and Google, is less of an ability to have mergers. Google has acquired 260 companies in the last 20 years. I mean, just ridiculous numbers. So, and then, you know, as an aside note too, antitrust, that was the Ma Bell cases. We look back at those mergers, you know, Ma Bell got broken up into the baby bells, but then they got remerged back into AT&T pretty much. So, you know, what was the exercise? It's really hard to say that it's helping competition. Um, but again, less mergers is what I would say is the biggest thing. Um, exposing some competitive advantages, you know, could be something that, you know, similar to what happened with Microsoft as well, too. But the biggest takeaway, uh, in my opinion, is these negative effects could be a decade away. They're, they're years away for certain if, if it's on a similar path. I mean, if it's on the same path, the conclusion won't be till 2029. But if these news headlines get dramatic, you know, next year or thereafter, and there's a big sell-off in these companies because people are afraid of them being broken up and things like that, you know, we would say that that's an unintuitive, contrarian opportunity. Uh, you you don't really see these stocks being viewed as contrarian on a buy side, but if they did have a really bad news cycle uh, due to this stuff, and it it went down due to this, uh, what we'd hope people get out of this discussion is that in the short term, that that's very short term thinking, and we think that it it will not affect them nearly as much as is what may baby speculated about. So speaking of headlines, investors have really been whipsawed by the market this year. We had the COVID-19 pandemic. You mentioned a very divisive, toxic US election. And of course, we've had some positive vaccine news. So as an advisor, you really are on the front lines uh, with the investors. And we're on the cusp of a new year. 2021 is, is looming in front of us. We're hoping for lots of positive news this year. How are you counseling your clients to think about their portfolios and investing in the coming year? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're you're mentioning exactly, you know, what's relevant of today. So it's this post-pandemic rotation that we're we're looking at at the end of this year. So, you know, we've seen stocks like Peloton and Zoom down 30, 20 percent, uh, Carnival Cruise Lines and Delta Air up 20 percent. And I think it's just a little too quick, uh, potentially a little bit of an overreaction. Uh, I can say in my own life, you know, I've got four kids. Groceries are a constant thing in our house. 
And, you know, this pandemic has pushed us to try to do delivery groceries. Uh, we had no other choice. Uh, but I can tell you going into it, I doubt we go back into the grocery store for quite a while because it's just so easy. And so there's going to be some lingering effects from the pandemic that that kind of accelerates some of this uh, new type of change as well, too. Uh, the other thing I'd say is uh, small cap stocks. You know, small cap stocks have gotten a little bit overlooked in this big mega cap rally as well, too. So wanting to make sure we're always forward looking to see what's going to do the best over the next year, not just what's done best over the last year. And, and really on the ground level, just helping clients think through these events before they happen. Uh, that's the key. You have to be proactive. You have to, you know, have these thought experiments with clients so that they know there's a plan and we can kind of, you know, implement a strategy when they occur as opposed to emotionally react. So our last few minutes, uh, two very quick closing questions. And these are questions I've been posing uh, to all of our guests. Uh, the first one is uh, I'd like to think you to think that you're about to go on a long duration space flight. And you're only allowed to take one object with you on that space flight. What would that object be? Okay. I got a lot of questions. Um, I don't know what I'm running from. Uh, you know, I got to say right off the bat, and I know it is what it is, but I'd probably stay. I'd probably just get off the spaceship and stay with my family, one. But if, if I was only worrying about myself, I guess I'd bring my uh, my mini Korg synthesizer. We were talking about music before. Uh, but one thing I can do and completely lose track of time is composing music. So I, I think if I was stuck in a spaceship, that's what I'd be bringing. I think that's a, a great answer. And the final question is what we call the, the ray of sunshine question. We try to end every episode with something positive. And in this case, what is one sort of long-term positive change in society or for you personally that you hope to see as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I would say kind of just, you know, re reconfirming my trust in, in human ingenuity or, you know, in, in us being able to figure things out on the fly. Uh, an aspect of that, I mean, being in finance, I know very little about science. Uh, so the fact that they can make a vaccine this quickly is just a real comforting thing, uh, even though it's been been awful to go through. Um, but but I guess more so too is just how fast business has uh, shifted and adjusted from this extreme event. I mean, uh, working from home quickly, businesses adjusting their business models, you know, within months. Uh, that's really been been the really interesting thing, and and just having that uh, knowledge that humans can really handle pretty much anything. We're going to make ourselves uh, stay on top and, and through anything. And granularly, maybe uh, I'm I'm not a big fan of wearing a suit every day, so I've enjoyed that during the pandemic, to be quite honest with you. So maybe we'll be a little bit more lax uh, on, on those type of formalities afterwards as well, too. So. Well, Sam, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show today. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, oh, my pleasure. Love the Institute and thank you for the opportunity. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. 
Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.